good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Last week, a bipartisan coalition of state attorneys general announced a $26 billion settlement with four major pharmaceutical companies for their role in fueling the opioid epidemic. The state of Michigan, where the opioid crisis has been particularly deadly, could receive up to $800 million in funds for compensation and for addiction treatment. This is an historic victory. There is really no other way to frame it. But as America continues to combat opioid and prescription abuse, is this resolution just the beginning of a larger movement in healthcare accountability? Here to talk about the settlement and her work in holding drug companies responsible is Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Dana, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So let's start with the significance of this settlement, especially as we emerge from the pandemic when opioid overdoses were actually exacerbated. Yeah, I think during the course of the, um, you know, the COVID pandemic, because, you know, that was such a tragedy and we lost so many lives, I think we temporarily forgot about the opioid epidemic, which, um, you know, has taken the lives of, of tens of thousands of Michiganders over the course of not just, you know, years, but over decades. Uh, and so I think the settlement is going to be incredibly important. It's the second biggest settlement uh, in Michigan history in terms of um, bringing in money into the state, only second to the tobacco settlement of the 1990s. Uh, but this is going to be markedly different from the tobacco settlement. And one of the long-term complaints that people legitimately made about that settlement is that a tremendous amount of that money never went into abatement uh, for tobacco usage. That's not true of this settlement. Uh, and there are provisions that dictate that this money has to be used to abate the opioid crisis. And that means whether it's, you know, prevention uh, and certainly treatment of those that are currently suffering from addiction, that money is going to be used in all sorts of ways, but it will all be in some way, shape or form related to the opioid crisis. Mm. And give us a sense of how Michigan compares to other states when we're talking about opioids and opioid addiction. We've been saying for a long time that things were particularly acute here, but I wonder if you can put that in, in some national, uh, national context. Well, I would say that compared to other states, we have been more hard hit uh, by the epidemic. And so as a result, you know, this formula was put together in terms of what percentage each state was going to receive and the territories and the tribes. And it, it's sort of a formula of population, uh, mortality rates, and also really the pill count. How many uh, pills were shipped to, you know, municipalities in the state of Michigan? And when you look at all those factors, we're actually going to be getting a higher percentage of these funds than our population would otherwise indicate. And that's because, unfortunately, uh, when you look at those other factors, mortality rates and the number uh, of people that were addicted to Michigan, our rates are worse. Mm. So as a result, we'll be getting more money. And that, that is why I think that Michigan is well served by this agreement. There are other states that are, are not as happy 
because they feel like they're not getting uh, what they deem to be their fair share uh, of these proceeds. But for Michigan, I think we've made out quite well. Um, and I think this money is going to go a long way towards uh, assisting, you know, an untold number of people that are that are suffering right now and really need help. Yeah. So, so also I'd love for you to put this in context in terms of settlements for uh, of this kind, right? Uh, the tobacco settlement, for instance, uh, of, of many years ago, uh, and other kinds of settlements that, that states enter into with, you know, corporations and, and others who, who do things that, uh, that are irresponsible. How big is, is this settlement in that context? Well, it's definitely substantial. It's not as big as the tobacco settlement, which was in the billions. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, even though that settlement, I want to say, was entered into in around 1994, we continue to receive, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from from that. But again, you know, that money went all kinds of places. It, it didn't, you know, the bulk of it did not go to abate tobacco usage. Um, there are other types of settlements that I, I think, first of all, in terms of opioids, this is not the first, nor is it the last of the settlements that we'll be entering into with Michigan. We um, entered into an earlier settlement with a uh, consulting firm where Michigan received almost $20 million, but we have lots of other cases that are pending. So, for instance, we have a case in Wayne County that's pending against Walgreens. That's going to continue. We have a number of other distributors and manufacturers that we are still in negotiations with. So, you know, $800 million is a lot of money, but it's not the last of the opioid-related funds that we're going to be receiving in terms of our work to hold uh, drug companies accountable. Uh, so there'll be more money coming in. But when you when you contrast it with other settlements, you know, we have, uh, we continue to have the PFAS cases that are pending against chemical manufacturers. My hope is that we'll be receiving even more money uh, on those cases if we're successful. So we have some big cases that are pending on other matters as well. But as you suggested at the beginning of the segment, it really is an effort to hold companies accountable when they knowingly um, distribute products that hurt our state residents. And that's something that, you know, I'm committed to. Uh, if you profited off of people suffering in this state and you knew that your product was going to cause some sort of harm uh, to, to Michiganders and you manufactured or disseminated uh, that product irrespective of those risks, then it shouldn't be our state tax dollars that pay to clean up the mess. It should be these companies that are responsible. And so even though whenever you have a civil case, you know, there's never going to be an admission of liability. It's not like a a criminal case where you have to tell a court of law that you are guilty of the offense and then you have to state the underlying facts. Uh, You know, I would say that $800 million surely uh, seems to suggest that these companies think that there are liability. But I will say this is not just the money. There are another uh, a number of other parts and components of this settlement, like the J&J, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Mm-hmm. They're out of the opioid business. They can't manufacture opioids anymore. And these distributors that we settled with, they're going to have some really intense oversight over how they distribute these products and how much of the products are permitted to go to certain areas. And, you know, you're not going to have a situation anymore where there is enough pills for every man, woman, and child in a particular uh, locality. 
and, and no oversight. There's going to be very um, significant oversight now. So it's not just a matter of getting this money to treat those who need help right now, but it's also making sure that we're not creating new addicts uh, because of the really reckless policies that, that were in place previous to this. Hmm. And talk about the industry itself and the culpability that you would assign uh, to them because of this. I mean, I think there has been some debate about how much they knew uh, and and how aggressive they were in, in pushing these products, even though they knew, uh, and also how deep the culpability goes. Does it go beyond the pharmaceutical companies to um, to physicians and 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 other people who were responsible? for treating people uh, rather than, than, than profiting off of, as you point out, profiting off of their misery? Well, certainly there are physicians that I think abuse this process. There's no question about that. But, you know, here you have these companies that created a product that they, they knew was addictive and they knew would uh, create addicts, uh, and, but they didn't, they didn't market it that way. They told physicians that these products, you know, you could take as, as many uh, hydrocodone pills or oxycontin pills or what have you that, that you wanted, and you would not become addicted, uh, and it would not have detrimental health effects. And they knew that wasn't true. They absolutely knew that, and they knew it for years. But they were making so much money off of it, but they didn't care. Uh, and even, you know, McKinsey, which was a consulting firm that we entered into that earlier settlement with, I mean, they were actually assisting in this process where they would have, um, an arrangement with the distributors where they'd say, okay, well, for every overdose, we know that makes this, uh, pharmacy look bad. We'll pay you sort of, uh, I would say like a, a bonus for everybody who, who overdoses to make up for the bad publicity you'll get from mm. it. I mean, there was no thought at all about, wow, people are dying. We have to reevaluate what we're doing here. Um, I think that these companies love the fact that they could encourage, say, a dentist to prescribe, you know, 90 pills, uh, you know, a Vicodin to somebody who had, you know, uh, minor dental surgery, mm -hmm. knowing that at the end of those 90 pills, they're going to want more of those pills, mm -hmm. right? Not only were, were those pills unnecessary to treat the, you know, short-term pain of somebody who had uh, minor dental surgery, but you were going to create an addict. And, and you would have situation after situation where people, um, you know, their only crime, these are people that, you know, many of them never involved in criminal activity uh, prior to them becoming addicted and did nothing wrong but take uh, a medication in accordance with the prescription uh, rendered by their doctor. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, now they're desperate to, you know, to ensure that either they get more pills or many of them, as we know, turn to illegal drugs like heroin and fentanyl. And because they were so desperate, uh, because the withdrawal impact uh, on opioids is so, so significant. It's a very, very hard substance to withdraw from. Um, and, you know, for your listeners that, that, aren't familiar with the, the side effects. I mean, you get very ill. I mean, you get sick. Mm -hmm. It's like the worst case of flu you've ever had in your life. So people are desperate to get more of this just so they don't feel sick anymore. And, and the, the drug companies profited off of that. They made billions and billions of dollars off of that. And I mean, it's unconscionable. 
and, and, you know, it's time that they're held accountable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. We're talking about the massive settlement that uh, attorneys general across the country have reached with uh, makers of opioids. $800 million is Michigan's share of that settlement, an awful lot of money in order to be able to help treat some of the people who were victims of uh, the opioid crisis. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. What's your reaction to this national $26 billion settlement? Have you or anyone you know been impacted by the opioid epidemic? And how would you like to see Michigan spend this $800 million. Uh, what do we do? What do we need to do to protect more Michiganders uh, against these drugs? As always, 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start with uh, David in Southfield. David, what's on your mind? Uh, yes. Uh, can you hear me well? I can sure you hear can. Me? Yep. Okay, very good. Uh, you know, I'm a physician and I'm a neurologist, and I treat patients, and I don't use the opioids because, uh, you know, I can't figure out, you know, who to give it to who doesn't. It's kind of complicated. I don't use it. But you know, patients are very demanding. They they will fire you as a doctor if you don't give it to them. They come mm. in with pain. They're severe. They're hurting, and they and they're 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 crying, and they want you to give them the medications. And so the patients are actually fueling the, the crisis. They actually, uh, you know, uh, I think I saw someone the other day, I think, that may kind of let me go because I think she probably wants me to give her medication. But, you know, the patients are actually demanding. When I came from, I, I, you know, I, I was, I'm in from North Carolina, but I came here, then I did some training, and I went somewhere else, came back, came back here. And when I came back here, uh, there was a doctor who was prescribing it uh, more than I use. I'm usually treating more typical neurological problems. And there were so many patients who were on the opioids. And so one time I asked the patients, I said, do you want me to just treat your problem or you want me to give you your medication? And mm. they said, I want you to give me my medication. Yeah. I don't want to hear all this stuff about education. You know, doctors yeah, know David, what opioids do. David, I don't know I, why someone thinks that they're being deceived by drug companies. Right. Doctors know and, and David, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I do want to get uh, Dana Nessel to be able to to respond to what you're saying. The, the, the liability that doctors have here obviously is is a, a dimension of this that's not really dealt with in the settlement. Is that right, Dana? Yeah, that's true. Um, although there are obviously all kinds of, you know, in terms of people who are addicted, um, like many of these people who are are you know, opioid seekers, uh, because they've already been prescribed opioids and now they want more. Uh, and, and by the way, I, let me say this. I don't want to say that opioids are not a legitimate form of treatment in any set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that they've been overprescribed and they've been prescribed in a litany of, of instances where it's not really necessary. But you have created, I think, a lot of people out there that uh, know about the, the short-term relief that they can get from opioids. And, um, and they now they want to continue to use them, irrespective of the fact, of course, that they'll have long-term health issues as a result in many, many cases. Uh, and we've sort of created this generation of people who, who want that immediate relief, irrespective of the consequences of it. Um, but, 
we, you know, this, this money will go into alternative treatment forms, um, you know, alternative, um, you know, pain clinics and, and ways for people to manage that pain that doesn't result in them later overdosing uh, or having, you know, major health issues, physical and mental health issues that arise from the use of opioids. That being the case, you know, it's, it's a balance because there are certainly cases, and I'll just give you, uh, for instance, you know, my 80-year-old mother um, broke her back and, you know, was in horrible pain. And, you know, the physician that she went to at this point, you know, was so hesitant to prescribe any opioids that even in that instance was like, well, I'm not going to prescribe it. And I was like, well, that seems like it's a little overboard, mm-hmm. you know, in that instance. So I, I think that the pendulum is kind of swung back and there are doctors that are nervous about prescribing these in any set of circumstances. Um, but I do think that because of the significance of the epidemic, you know, it's probably appropriate for doctors to be very, very careful. But I do understand now we have, we have, you know, a large number of patients that are going to be seeking this medication, mm-hmm. uh, even sometimes when it's it's really not good for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David, again, thanks very much for the call, uh, uh, General Nessel. I know you've have, you've got to run soon, but before you do, I really want to ask you about this uh, attempt to investigate people who've been spreading false claims about the 2020 election to raise money or get publicity for themselves. Uh, talk about why that's an important step and what the lines are, in your mind, between free speech and something that can get you in legal trouble. So generally speaking, you know, I will say, uh, of course, this was a request made by the, you know, by the Senate Oversight Committee and, and Senator McBroom. And I think it should be noted, of course, that all but one of the members of that committee are Republicans. And when I say Republicans, I mean Trump-supporting Republicans. Mm-hmm. These, were, these were people who were uh, avid and vocal supporters of the former president. However, after they spent eight months uh, investigating these claims of election fraud um, and, and, you know, interviewing dozens and dozens of witnesses, an exhaustive list of documents, the conclusion that they came to in their report is that while there was no uh, evidence of election fraud, there was evidence of multiple other kinds of fraud. And the kind of fraud they found were people who knowingly were disseminating this um, misinformation, disinformation about election fraud, and were profiting off of it. And so in accepting the request by the Senate Oversight Committee for uh, to investigate, the initial thinking, I think, was like any other product. If you were to say, hey, I have this, I have this, formula, this drink. Uh, and if you ingest it, it's going to do all kinds of things. It'll reverse aging and you'll lose weight. It prevents COVID. I don't know. A litany of things that you know are, are factually inaccurate. You know for a fact that that is not true information, but you market that product anyway, then that you've committed a crime. Mm-hmm. You are selling that product to people under false pretenses. And essentially that was, that was the sense that the Senate Oversight Committee got that these uh, attorneys and other people knew that this information was false, but they were saying, give me money and I will prove that there was election fraud, even though they knew that none of the things they were saying were actually truthful or accurate. And so essentially they were scamming people, which is a crime. So we, you know, we decided to take that investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, my office is currently, um, you know, pursuing that investigation. 
Um, I will say for myself personally, at this point, I have um, built an isolation wall and I've removed myself personally from that investigation. Why? Because one of the individuals who uh, was mentioned and who is a potential target, um, all of a sudden after we took the investigation announced he'd be running against me, Mm. which is, of course, you know, creating what he perceives to be, I think, a conflict of interest to try to get us to stop an investigation that, frankly, there's no other law enforcement agency in the state that can really handle this because I I don't see the local counties that are involved handling a case of this magnitude. Um, So I guess my department will see where the investigation goes. But uh, I will say the part that I find to be interesting about it is if you could just all of a sudden, I don't know, sue the Department of Attorney General and then say, oh, you can't do an investigation into me now because there's conflict of interest because I just sued you after you knew an investigation had begun. I think that would be very problematic. Mm-hmm. You can't create a conflict to get out of an investigation. Um, but that investigation is ongoing. And I guess, um, you know, my, my criminal division and my investigative division and my election division will have to see what it leads to. But I think I described basically what the premise of the investigation is about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. We'll talk to you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hear from Denzel McCampbell, who is a candidate for Detroit City Clerk, but also a member of the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission. Uh, We're going to talk to him about why he's running, why he wants to be the clerk, and what he thinks both about his race and Proposal P, which is the Charter Revision's question on the ballot August 3rd. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.